Well, we're looking at this J-curve idea again today, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. It's a text that we've considered back when we did our Colossians study, but uh, one that we need to look at again. And so here's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about life in Christ with that little formula that Paul uses uh, again and again in his letters to describe our relationship to Jesus in the Messiah, in the, in the force field of, of his power and authority. <clears throat> and we've seen that this idea uh, is the basis of salvation. And we've we thought a bit about that uh, lower level of the pyramid and this idea that we are righteous by faith. We, we don't accomplish our own salvation. Salvation is not a, uh, a self-improvement project. It is a rescue and salvage operation that only God could achieve. And it's achieved in the coming of Jesus into the world who lays down his life for us. And so the gospel is believe in Jesus. Believe in those promises that God has made concerning him that all those who trust in what he has done will be accepted and received and saved. We've called this the faith J-curve because it's this idea Paul has that when we believe, we are united to Jesus uh, in, in some kind of personal way that's very mysterious, but as we've, we've said it a number of times, Whatever happens to Jesus happens to all his people. So the faith J-curve then says that as Jesus died, I sometime, somehow have died with him, even though it happened before I ever existed. And when he was raised up from the dead, I was raised up. When he was exalted to his father's right hand, then I was exalted as well. This is the, the faith J-curve. But what we've been talking about then at more length for the last couple of weeks is uh, what we might call a personal J-curve. A personal situation in which I die to self. I, I have to experience something in me that is analogous to what happened to Jesus. Even if I don't die literally, and in this process, people normally don't die literally, but there is a death that takes place, which the Bible talks about as death to self. Or Jesus talks about it in Matthew 16, we noted those verses where he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. So the denial of self, that's saying no to yourself, that feels like you're dying sometimes, doesn't it? 
Well, that's, that's what we're thinking about here. This is, in contrast to the righteousness of faith, what we've been calling the righteousness of love. Our love to Jesus revealing itself in our willingness to say no to self, to die, and in the J-curve then to rise again to a new kind of life in which we actually become like the Messiah. So we believe in Christ, but we also become like Christ. That's the idea of the J-curve. Now, in his book on the J-curve, Paul Miller discusses three kinds of J-curves, just to keep life complicated for you, all right? And uh, we've actually talked about one already last week when we talked about this idea that suffering finds us. You don't have to go looking for suffering. It will find you where you are in all kinds of different forms. This... uh, obviously enough, I suppose, is called that suffering J-curve. And we talked about some examples of that. Uh, Paul's uh, book does a lot with the story of uh, Johnny Erickson. And if you know that story, you know that Johnny was this vivacious, popular, 17-year-old woman who... uh, dove into a pond and struck her head upon a rock and for the rest of her life has been confined to a wheelchair. Suffering finds you, right? Sometimes in very dramatic ways like that or in less dramatic ways, but suffering finds us. And the question is then, how do we receive that experience? And in Johnny's life, there was a period of his first couple years when she just rejected that. She she thought that simply by willpower, she was going to walk again. But there came a time, a turning point in her life, in the experience of dying, that she began to experience resurrection because she embraced that. She said, this is my, if you will, this is my thorn in the flesh, right? That I'm going to be confined to a wheelchair. And as she embraced it, then there was a kind of extraordinary resurrection that took place in her life. So, that's uh, suffering finding us. Today we want to talk about the repentance J-curve, in which uh, we embrace dying as part of a way of addressing the sin that's in our lives. And then next week, we'll look at the third one, which is the love J-curve, in which love suffers for and with other people. So let's think about this repentance J-curve then, and we'll go to Colossians 3. Now, I've, I've tried to do some highlighting here to help this to stand out. Paul actually talks about two J-curves here. He goes back and he talks about the faith J-curve, that foundational level of the pyramid in which by faith we're linked to Jesus. And I've highlighted that by underlining 
the print at different places. You notice when he talks here, he talks in the indicative. This is what has happened, or this is what's going to happen. But then he shifts gears in verse 5, and he talks about death in a different way. He talks about it as something that you and I need to do. This isn't suffering that finds us. This is suffering that we embrace. We say, this needs to happen in my life. So he puts the two together here. Follow along. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. All right, so in this passage, Paul Starts out talking about that faith J-curve that we have thought about. Here's what he says. You died. Indicative, right? This this is what has happened, Paul says, because you have been faith-connected to Jesus. You died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So this is the reality about you as a believer in Jesus that only God sees. (laughs) You walk into Wawa... And there's no sign lit up over your head saying this person is actually seated with Christ in heaven. Right? Nobody else sees that. You don't see it about yourself. You believe it because it's the promise of the gospel. But only God sees that reality. This is what he knows about you, knowing your faith and knowing what his purpose is in the gospel, that you are already, indeed, Paul can even sometimes use this kind of language, he can even say that from eternity you were connected with Jesus. So whatever happens to him, his death, his resurrection, his present enthronement at the right hand of God, his return in glory, that will all happen to you. It has happened, and it will happen as he returns. You will be revealed with him in glory. But this is what God alone sees. You don't really see it 
you believe this. Well, why does Paul talk about it? Well, he talks about it because he thinks that if you know this and fix your mind on it, that it will shape who you are. In other words, Paul's concerned about identity formation. Identity formation is about who you think you are. And who you think you are will impact the way you behave. And so Paul is saying, let this truth shape your identity. That's why in those opening verses, he gives us two encouragements. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. And then he repeats it. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because Jesus is at the right hand of God. And because Paul is convinced that your life is actually linked to Jesus. So that's your identity. Paul says start thinking in line with your identity as one of God's people. Let this truth shape who you are. He says a similar thing in in Romans chapter 6 where in the opening of chapter 6 he says now any of you who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. You've been baptized into his death so that you can be raised again to new life as he was raised to new life. See that same principle, dying and rising, the J-curve. And you've been linked to the J-curve. So what does Paul say then in verse 11, chapter 6? Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, down in the J-curve, alive to God, raised up with Christ. Consider that. Reckon this to be true because this is your genuine identity. And as you focus on that, it shapes your activity. So that's the faith J-curve. Indicative statement. This has happened to you. Ah, but now there's the part of your life that you can see, that other people see. And that's, that's different. So what about that part that other people can see? Well, Paul says, that part of you that people can see, that needs to experience the J-curve, the dying and the rising again. So he sets off in verse 5 of Colossians after he's told us these indicative statements about who we really are in Jesus Christ. He says now, verse 5, put to death, therefore, your members upon the earth, which he's talking about the way the body functions to serve sin. Put it to death. He has a similar thought in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. 
Notice what he says here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their own sinful selves. They've given up their old selfish feelings and the evil things they wanted to do. This is their identity and this is their practice. This putting to death, this crucifixion. That's what Jesus talks about. Anyone who wants to come after me, let him die himself and take up his cross. And Paul's using that same kind of language when he talks about crucifixion here. Or in Colossians when he's talking about putting to death. Well, now this this raises a theological question for us which has been debated a whole lot uh, and continues to to find discussion. Uh, The question, I guess, is for us, this idea of, of me putting the flesh, putting the sinful nature to death, is that part of the gospel? I mean... Isn't isn't this the gospel? The base of the J-curve. The base of life in Christ. Isn't the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Faith. You, You don't do anything, you simply receive the promise. Isn't that the gospel? Well, yes, it's, uh, it's foundational. I would say it's part of the gospel. What about that upper part of the pyramid that we've been chatting about? This, this idea of dying to self, is that part of the gospel? Or is that an add-on. Do we say the gospel is believe in Christ and, and then becoming like Christ is uh, optional? And there are a surprising number of people out there who say, that's optional. What's required is believing in Christ, but becoming like him, that's an option. Some people people would say, well, that's discipleship there. That's That's not the gospel. It's good, it's important. Certainly want to invite people into discipleship and following Jesus, but it's not, it's not a necessary part of the message. Well, uh, I'm not of that school of opinion, friends. It seems to me that it's pretty clear that both with Jesus and with the apostles, They don't make that kind of distinction. 
you say, but doesn't Paul himself say that we're saved by grace through faith? Not of yourselves, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's not of works. Doesn't Paul say that? Yeah, he, he does. And certainly Paul is against all boasting because boasting would suggest that salvation is something that we make happen. And Paul doesn't think that. None of the New Testament writers think that. So how are we going to sort this out? Well, something like this, I guess. We need to say that salvation is not by works, meaning that those things that God calls us to do, the ways he tells us to live, is not something we do by way of, of meriting his saving favor. But it's clearly the case that those who have been called to life in Jesus Christ are intended to become like him. And that's, that's very clear. That's why Paul can say, already it's true that you've not only died with him, you've been raised up and you're seated in the heavenly places, and when he appears in his glory, you're going to appear in glory with him. The whole assumption there is our being conformed to the image of Christ. So I find it helpful the way uh, Dallas Willard has said it, that salvation is opposed, or the gospel uh, is opposed to effort, is opposed to earning, not effort. Right. So, so this whole talk about living in the J-curve, it's not about trying to be good for God. It's, it's seeking to be like Jesus. And the fact is, it's, it's this place of the J-curve, the suffering J-curve, where we actually become like him. Remember those verses we looked at in Philippians about three weeks ago? Philippians 3, where Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Notice the J-curve there. I want to know the power of his resurrection. How? Participating in his sufferings. And what's important about all that? Paul says, I want to know Christ. I don't want to just know about it. See, that, that base level, that beginning level of faith in Jesus, which is so important, we, we still, even there, tend to know Christ at a distance. But in this suffering J-curve, this putting to death the flesh, Paul says, I want to know that. I want to know the power of his dying and the power of his rising made known in my life. 
Well, so here's the question. How, how do you do that? How does that happen? <clears throat> so I've just tried to give a little thought to a few suggestions that may resonate with you. I don't think there's a formula someplace, but here's some things that, that stand out in my mind that have helped me. How can I enter into this repentance J-curve where I put to death those things in my life that are contrary to the way of Jesus? Well, we need to, we need to start with prayer, I think. Prayer is the foundation of the spiritual life. Well, what do you pray for? I'd say we pray for discernment. It's really hard to see ourselves, isn't it? So we pray, Holy Spirit, help me to discern, help me to see. What does the psalmist say? Who can discern his secret faults? That's a challenge. So we ask God for help. Again, this is not, this is not a self-improvement program, friends. This, this is embracing the gospel. So we pray for discernment. We pray for help because this is challenging. This idea of dying to self. Painful process. So discernment and help. I think, we, I think we need this in particular because when we look at our lives and we seriously consider what it means to begin to look like Jesus, we can be just overwhelmed. I mean, there's so much in my life that, that I can be overwhelmed and then very easily I become paralyzed. I don't, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. So the prayer for discernment is partly saying, Holy Spirit, uh, what is there in my life at this time that you would help me with in putting to death the flesh, so that I can be raised up in newness of life. And as we pray that prayer then, we begin to pay attention. We've talked about paying attention before, but it's back here in this repentance J-curve. Huh? We pay attention to those places in our lives where we have that sense that we could have done it better, where things don't go as we would have liked. So I've told you that one of the things that, uh, one of many things that God is working on with me for a number of years now has been trying to deal with my impatience. And part of dealing with it means that I need to pay attention to those places where impatience gets me in trouble, which is most places. 
But I, ha- but I have to see those triggers, those situations that set me up for failure. I need to pay attention to the fact that that impatience is closely related to frustration because I'm not getting what I think I want to get as soon as I would like to get it. And with frustration then builds anger. I've experienced blockage in my desires and uh, you remember how the, the old loggers used to uh, get their, their logs down to the, to the mills in Williamsport, which was the lumber capital of the world? You know how they did it? They, they cut logs all winter long. And then they, they scooped out slides on the sides of the mountains and they'd pour water down the slides and get them as slick as ice. And then everything, they'd pull the logs to the slides and the slides would go down into the valleys and they would create dams of these logs. And the water would back up and back up and back up. And when spring came, they'd send those logs down the river. But there's a problem, right? The problem is, You've been piling logs in there all winter long. So what do you do to get the logs and the water moving? Dynamite, right? <clears throat> so when, when I get impatient and experience the blockage of my desires, how do you get it moving? A little emotional dynamite, right? So I can, I'm paying attention to those patterns and I'm seeing, I'm seeing there are certain times and situations where my frustration level is higher than other times. <clears throat> and when I'm tired, then I get frustrated much more quickly. Uh, when I get... Uh, Well, you get the idea, right? So I can begin, if I'm paying attention, I can begin to track back and see where the difficulties are initiated. And the more I become aware of that, and the Holy Spirit helps me discern that, the more I can take preventive action before it becomes too late and the dynamite has just blown up. Which means then, if you're going to pay attention, then you ought to have a strategy, depending on what it is you're trying to deal with. What kind of strategy would you use? One of my strategies is that if I, if I get pressed on something that is raising my impatience and my frustration level, One of my strategies is, if I don't have to, I will not respond immediately. I will simply defer it. Uh, 
I found that one of the worst things I can do is write an email. Occasionally I will write an email, but I will not hit send. Somehow those emails always look different the next morning. But, but once you press the send key, that's like lighting the fuse on the dynamite. So you need a strategy. In his, uh, in his book on uh, the J-curve, uh, Paul Miller talks about his challenge of wrestling with pride through much of his ministry life over a period of years and uh, some of the ways that he has addressed that. And uh, yeah, hope is not a strategy. I, I bumped into that little sign. I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. A lot of times I hope that things are going to change in my life, but I don't have a strategy to see change. So Paul is, uh, <clears throat> is talking about this. See if you can get what he's saying. You can't cure pride. He's talking about himself. You can't cure pride simply by an act of faith. Say, Lord, I, I trust in you, and I know i got a problem with pride, and so confessing it, Lord, help me to deal with it. It's a good prayer to start, but as he says, you can't cure it simply by an act of faith. As important as faith is, unless we are actively reenacting Jesus' life, that is, the dying and the rising, Pride will regrow. Boasting is removed in principle at the cross. In principle. Because I've died and I've been raised with Christ. In practice, it is removed as we reenact the cross. To see Jesus, we must do Jesus. And in his book, he tells about some of the ways that he's had to face pride and to learn to laugh at himself, but it's been a process. It's been a challenge. And he's saying we need a strategy for it because just acknowledging it and asking God to change it will probably not work. So have you heard people who have had, say, an alcohol problem and they came to faith and they prayed to God to take it away, and it was instantly removed. I have heard of a couple people in my life who testify to that experience, and I believe them. But I have heard many others who have had that same problem as believers, and they have struggled and struggled and maybe one of the reasons they've struggled is they didn't have a strategy. One of the advantages of, of groups like Alcoholics Anonymous is they give people a strategy, and that's important. All right, well, that's the repentance J-curve, and uh, you may have a sense of where God wants you to follow Paul's words and put to death whatever belongs to your earthly members so that you can look more like Jesus. That's our hope. That's my hope for myself and for you. Next week, we'll look at the love J-curve. But until then, uh, think about this, pray about it, reflect on it, and uh, let's pray together as we 
depart this service. Lord, this is a, uh, a challenging topic for us all. To think that you really want us now in this life to begin to look like you and to enter into our own J-curve of dying and rising again so that people who see us might sense that there is something different about us, something that looks like Jesus. We ask God that we would be a congregation of people who are encouraging each other in the path to Christ-likeness. Even this week, Lord, as we, as we face those challenges that come, help us, to, help us to live into the reality of your cross and your resurrection. We ask it because we believe that this is really the purpose that you have for our lives. Amen. Now let me give you this benediction from uh, the words of Moses. <clears throat> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.